this positive effect of looks on earnings goes over the entire distribution of looks. The really ugly do worse than just the somewhat ugly, who do worse than the average, who do worse than the decent looking, who do worse than the really gorgeous people. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Daniel Hammermesh, the Sue Killian Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Texas at Austin. He is renowned for his work in labor economics and especially for his role in applications of empirical analyses to areas that usually are not considered susceptible to economic analysis at all. Dan, welcome to The Work Goes On. Thanks for having me, Orly. It's a pleasure to have you. Let's start the discussion uh, by talking about your background. Where did you grow up, Dan? I grew up in Villa Park, Illinois, from ages 11 through 18. It's an utterly middle-class western suburb of Chicago, about 20 miles from the loop. In 1960, when I was in high school, senior year, that was a census year, the median family income in Villa Park was three dollars from the national median this was really middle class this town that is uh, interesting what did your mom and dad do dad had a phd in theoretical or mathematical physics from nyu at the time i was growing up from 48 till 65 he worked at argonne national laboratory which is in the southwestern suburbs of chicago starting off as a staff physicist becoming in his last two years deputy director of the whole laboratory mom just right when I was finishing high school, started teaching high school English. She had a master's in English, and that was her first job doing it. And she continued that to the end of her career. Is that now, is Argonne associated with the University of Chicago? Uh, <laughs> it most certainly is, and it was one of the banes of my daddy's existence, having to deal with the U of C. <laughs> See, well, I, I asked in part because I know you went to the University of Chicago as an undergraduate. How did that happen? Very simple. Uh, <laughs> I applied to Harvard, Chicago, and Oberlin. I was rejected at Harvard. And Chicago had the virtue that because daddy was somewhat associated with it, I got half tuition. So tuition per year was only $1,000. Well, of course, $1,000 went further back then. What, so you, you were an undergraduate there. Uh, what an incredible group of people in labor relations and labor economics were present at Chicago around that time. I guess you were associated with those people. Indeed, that sort of made my career, although I was interested in labor from day one. Middle of the second year, I took a course, I think it was probably the first modern labor economics course taught anywhere. It used a book by Mel Reeder called Labor in a Growing Economy, and the instructor was Greg Lewis, <laughs> okay, who to me, I mean, you've written an encomium to him at one point. I just published one about him. I do view him as the father of, of modern labor economics. What, what was he like as a teacher? He was a very introverted person, 
And I always thought he might have difficulty teaching undergraduates. Well, there weren't very many of us. There might have been 10 in the class. And he had no difficulty at all. I found him to be maybe it's just me or the match rather than a pure individual effect of him. But I found it to be incredibly inspiring. Just maybe it's the material, which he was enthusiastic about, and so was I. So all the stereotypes people have of him, being introverted, being nasty, I always found the opposite in every dealing I had in the class. And then starting that summer after my second year, he hired me as an RA. And I worked for him with the exception of one quarter until I graduated two years later. And he was fantastic in every respect. It's interesting. You know, he visited us and I always found him to be a, a very interesting and, and wonderful person too. But I, it is, you're right. His reputation uh, is not the same as that. <laughs> and I don't know why. I mean, maybe he just viewed me as sort of a, a kid who he wanted to help out. And uh, he certainly did. Well, I'll never forget, <laughs> he showed me a grad school recommendation that he had written for me. Uh, and he wrote in it, uh, Hammermesh is one of six RAs I've employed, I'm employing currently. The other five are all grad students. He is the second best. <laughs> now, most people would say, gee, that's real good. I was really ticked off. Okay. <laughs> Until years later, I found out the best by him was Sherwin Rosen. And so I didn't feel so badly about it after that. It's a little bit like there's a similar story about Al Reese saying that the best class he ever taught was the one that Jim Heckman was in. And of course, Jim Heckman was the only student in that class. <laughs> well, I was the only student in another class at Chicago. My third year, I decided to take a course on economic growth theory. And there were seven grad students auditing it and me. The instructor was Harry G. Johnson, who <laughs> these days nobody's heard of. He He's a man of whom Milton Friedman said, a writing machine fueled by alcohol. That was the sobriquet about him. Wrote a lot, yeah. He wrote a lot. I did a term paper for him on putting human capital into a growth model. And he wrote back, this is a great paper. You should get it published, B. <laughs> this was Chicago. The only person who didn't behave like this was Al Reese, who you mentioned, who my fourth year, he taught, of course, it was really industrial relations class, which I took both fourth year fall and then winter term as well, a second semester, second quarter of it. And he was always extremely gentle and uh, very interesting to listen to, too. Much more philosophical than Greg certainly was, but equally interesting, I thought. Interesting guy. Well, of course, I was very close to him. He was a great friend of ours. How, now, how in the world did you get from Chicago with a crowd like that, to Yale, where you did your PhD? <laughs> it's a great question. It seems somewhat bizarre. The answer is I talked to Greg about it, and he said you should not go to Chicago. You should go somewhere else. Okay? So I said, okay, where? And I figured Harvard and MIT, those are the obvious ones. There was a man there then, international economist, named Herbert Grubel, who eventually left, taught Simon Fraser, became a right-wing member of the Canadian Parliament, by the way. He'd gone to Yale. He said, I should apply there. So I did. And for the second time in my career, I was rejected by Harvard. It's gotten to be a continuing story. Uh, got into MIT and Yale. And for some reason, which I don't now understand why, I chose to go to Yale, not to MIT. I'm very glad I did for very strange reasons, because I think MIT was a better program. But 
be that as it may, I chose to go to Yale and spent, well, three and a half, four years there. Who was your advisor? <laughs> Another not so easy question to answer. The nominal advisor was a man who taught labor economics there named Mark Lyserson. He was really a development economist who did labor, and he was incredibly thoughtful, not theoretical, mathematical, empirical at all. I had him in class my first year. Also, for my first year and part of my second at Yale, I took econometrics with Mark Nurlov, who people do know. He won a Clark Medal later on. And he was the second advisor who had much more to do with the thesis, really, which was a quite technical thesis, than Mark Lyserson did. So Mark was helpful. He was a nominal advisor. But the real influence on the thesis uh, was, in fact, Mark Nurlov. And you, I know you wrote about labor demand, and especially costs of adjustment. And, and you wrote about that a, a quite a few times, as I recall. Yeah, I've made a living off that sort of. Actually, the thesis, <laughs> somebody I was talking about theses with somebody recently about, it's some, I can't remember who it was, said it took a number of years to publish his thesis. Well, in my case, it took almost no time at all, because we had to publish most of the darn thing in a journal called the Yale Economic Essays. Oh, I remember Which, those. yeah, well, it's not memorable at all. I'm amazed you know about it. It, I published mine in fall of '69. Uh, the journal died a year later. Okay, <laughs> so I'm not sure that's cause and effect, but it's quite possible my thesis helped kill off that journal. I did get one essay in the RE Stats out of it, the Review of Economic and Statistics. It was a very technical piece, not really part of it. The thesis was looking at flows of gross flows of labor. In other words, not just employment changed in response to shocks, but how new hires changed, how quits changed, layoffs, rehires, blah, blah, blah. That was the novelty, how these responded. And I know you were always interested, I guess, as a result of that, in uh, the cost of adjustment uh, by firms. And I wanted to ask you about that because that issue has, I think, come up again in the current period. I haven't seen much on it in the current period uh, what I got, I mean, I worked on labor demand. I've worked on it off and on over my entire career. In fact, I'm doing a, a, I'm doing a labor demand piece right now, believe it or not, which is having great fun with. The cost of adjustment stuff was just asking the question, in all of our models, we assume firms adjust smoothly when they're hit by a shock. And I was just certain that wasn't correct. Indeed, I got the idea for thinking about cost of adjustment in the early 80s when I became department chairman. It came quite clear to me that it was much easier for me to hire three people, these costs per hire, than it was to hire one person. A lot of fixed costs. And quite frankly, I told the dean, look, save your money up. Give me three slots. Don't give me zero, one this year, one the next year. Of course, the dean didn't buy that because they can't budget. I mean, they aren't smart enough to budget that way. But I'd have been a heck of a lot better off. So it got me thinking about the fixed costs of hiring and thinking about whether firms, in fact, do face what we call non-convex adjustment costs. Then, in fact, of course, they do. And uh, I did stuff on that for a number of years. And as I said, I'm still working on labor demand or trying to. Well, it, I think it's come up recently because of the current uh, there are some sectors of the economy now, at least I see anecdotally, where people think demand has fallen off, but where employers, because of their most recent experience trying to hire and how difficult it was, have decided they may not uh, cut their employment as much as they otherwise would. And that's sort of consistent with your 
with your view? It is very much consistent. It's consistent also with these non-convex costs. I'd rather make a little rather than make a little cut now, I'll postpone and make zero cuts. And if things do get bad enough, and I think I can do it, I'll get rid of a bunch of people at once. Okay. What I'm working on now is related to this. I'm working on days versus hours and how they adjust, mm-hmm. uh, which we've had no work on whatsoever in our business. We don't know how days change. Well, you have uh, actually recently talked about, and I think people are interested in this, uh, the idea of the four-day work week. Yes. Uh, this is sort of an unfortunate story. Some group in England has been pushing a four-day work week with a sort that they call an experiment, which isn't an experiment by any person and certainly not an economist. They demonstrated that some firms that they got to agree to do this could cut their work hours to four days, eight hours a day, and get more productivity. Now, I, don't, I find this as an economist very hard to believe that employers are so dumb that they're throwing away eight hours of work a week by their employees. And this has gotten press all over the world. I was on national television about it two weeks ago, trying to poo-poo this. And I did a paper on four days just recently, looking at how much there is. And everybody thinks that this is a huge thing going on. It's not. About 6% of the workforce is four days. But everybody thinks this is the coming thing. It'll be a panacea. We'll be able to work less, make more money, et cetera, et cetera. And if you believe that, I have a bridge just across the street here that I'd be happy to sell you. And we should explain that you're in New York. So I think you're talking about the Brooklyn Bridge. I'm talking about the Brooklyn Bridge, which if you want to buy it, you're as lucky to buy the Brooklyn Bridge as to get more work from fewer hours. Uh, Now, I know you've worked on uh, some very unusual areas. And uh, I I think we should probably talk about the one that uh, at least I think probably you're best known for. And that's uh, the role of people's uh, looks or beauty, as you call it, and their compensation and how they're treated in the labor market. First of all, how how did you, I I actually, I know about this in part, I heard you on NPR once uh, in a taxi cab in Chicago on the way to the art museum, the guy had NPR on, and you were being interviewed about the merits of plastic surgery. Yes. And I remember that distinctly that your response to what should economists say about plastic surgery was you should do it early so you can collect the benefits over a long period. I don't know if you remember that. I do. How did you how did you get onto the this issue because you did a lot of empirical work associating uh, people's appearances with their compensation. Uh, how did you get onto that topic in the first place? Well, first of all, I'm still doing it, despite my wife's admonitions that I should get out of this business. It's a gift that keeps on giving. How did I get on it? Very simple. I was doing another paper on something else. I can't even remember what it was. And I came across a data set, which happened to have in the interviewers, the interviewer would rate the beauty of the respondent. And I said, wouldn't it be cool to ask how this affects wages once you adjust for everything else, how it might differ uh, among between men and women, how it might affect other bits of behavior. So my co-author and I got off on this uh, probably in the 
oh gosh, when was it? Probably in the late 80s, early 90s, based upon the data that we had seen. It was a very bad thing to do. The moment I saw these data where they rated people 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, I wound up walking around campus looking at people and mentally giving every one of them a rating. This is not a good thing to do at all. I don't recommend this. Well, and you had, I know one of one of the studies that I found pretty convincing was one where you used lookbook. No, I, 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 I'm not sure what you call it. It was the picture book of law students from the University of Michigan. Yeah, that, 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 okay. some, some people call it the lookbook, or the, some people call it the Facebook. In fact, that's how Facebook got its name. No, exactly. I call it the Facebook. That, actually, that posed a very interesting research question, okay? These were classes, I can now say it, from the University of Michigan Law School. One of the classes contained my wife. Okay. So the question is... I did not know that. Yes. No, it's not, it's not well known. So the question is, do I have a bunch of other people rating my wife's looks, or do I excise my wife from the sample? I mean, it's sort of an ethical issue. And I decided, well, it's okay in econometrics to get rid of an observation as long as you're not doing it because of an outcome the person had. And I did not want my peop- my raters, students and fat young staffers, rating my wife's look. So I removed my wife from that paper, okay? Uh, she was not unhappy about not having her looks rated, believe <laughs> me. Anyway, so I got off on beauty. We did a whole bunch of them. We even did one on the beauty of economists. And what I did was, as you I'm sure know, uh, and others may know, every year the American Economic Association sends out a ballot, it's now of course online, in which they have pictures of all the candidates. And I remember seeing that and some person whom I know, I'm not very fond of, had a picture which looked like it was from her, her teen years. She didn't look like that at all, but she had a very good looking picture in there. And it really ticked me off. So I asked the question, does an economist's looks affect how well they do in these elections? I asked the then secretary treasurer of the association if he would send me all the ballots. He, I told, he said, why? Well, I said, I want to use, rate their looks and see if it affects their electoral chances. He said, you can't do this study. They're all ugly, uh, which may well be the case, but they're differentially ugly. And in fact, the idea worked out quite well. I mean, there was this almost statistically significant, but substantial size effect of being good looking, everything else the same on your chances of getting elected to an office in the AEA. This doesn't matter very much. These offices have essentially no power, but it is an honorific and being better looking gave you access to this honorific. This may be one reason why I've never won elections, by the way. I I honestly do not remember seeing that paper. Uh, and I can I can understand why the uh, some people in the association may want to want, want to bury it. Uh, <laughs> the the well, tell us about it. What, what what would you say are the main findings after all this work on looks and appearance and, and pay? What 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 would you say are the other takeaways from it? Two or three. First of all, comparing the top third of people to the bottom sixth in the U.S the impact of wages is about the same as an extra year of schooling, say 10%, which is not small. And that's after adjusting for every other possible thing you can think of that would affect wages. The second thing, which surprises everybody, but it's now been verified in a number of countries, is the impact of, on wages of differences in beauty is larger among men than among women. 
which surprises everybody since women that we know are more concerned about it. And the reason, which is something we investigated many years later in a study, is that women are bothered by their looks. It's not that looks, bad looks make them get a little money that affects them a little, but they're terribly bothered by not being good looking. They think about it a lot. Whereas men, much more of the difference in happiness due to looks is, is due to, uh, to the effect on their earnings. So that's the second takeaway, the gender difference. I remember when we came out with that in the first paper, there was a story on the front page of the Wall Street Journal where they concluded that from our work. And they had this leading feminist economist with this wonderfully non-intellectual quote saying, I don't care what they think they found. I know this is more of a problem for women than for men. Okay. This is what we economists have to deal with. You have some serious study and somebody who doesn't do economics or do empirical work says, I don't care. It's rubbish. I don't like the conclusion. And you've come across this in your own work countless times, I know. The, uh, the, what was the third thing then? The third thing I think is interesting. It is that basically this positive effect of looks on earnings goes over the entire distribution of looks. The really ugly do worse than just the somewhat ugly, who do worse than the average, who do worse than the decent looking, who do worse than the really gorgeous people, of whom there may be one or two percent. Maybe in certain jobs there is what I call a bimbo effect. The gorgeous woman who may not do as well, but this is very, very minor and unimportant. In other words, in economic or mathematical terms, this is a monotonic thing. You get better looking, you do better. On plastic surgery, maybe in my own case, if I could have hair implants, I have, don't have too much. I'm, and the journalists who write about me on this say I'm follically, F-O-L-L-I-C-A-L-L-Y, challenged. Okay, If I could have hair implants, if I could have my entire facial structure beaten up and recast, it might make me better looking. But the general evidence suggests that plastic surgery, while it may make you feel better, doesn't really do that much for your looks as perceived by others. And certainly clothing, haircuts make very little difference. I have a paper on that asking whether spending more money on your dress, your hair, etc. affects how you're perceived. And the answer is very, very small effects. It's not a good investment if all you care about is a monetary return. Now, let me, let me say something to you. You asked about the crazy papers I've worked on, and beauty is the most well-known of the crazy papers. But there's one which came out of my time at Princeton, which you haven't asked that. And since we are... I, I, I was going to get to that, I think. It's, it's a wonderful story in a lot of ways, and this you may not know. I published a paper with a Princeton grad student in January 1974 called An Economic Theory of Suicide. And... I don't think people know how it came about. It came I, I, I think I do know, but you, please tell us. I'm amazed. I haven't talked about this too much. Anyway, it came about because my thesis advisor, co-advisor, Mark Nurlove, was visiting. I think this would have been probably in April of 1972, maybe? Uh, and he was going on and on about the economics of the family and Gary Becker's wonderful work on this. I said, Mark... Next thing you're going to tell me is that something as bizarre as suicide can be affected and thought about using economic theory. And he just laughed at me and said, oh, that's silly. And I went home that night, and for probably the only time in my life, I worked very late in the night writing down a model of an economic theory of suicide. 
Okay. This was inspired at Princeton by the seminar and dinner afterwards. So I wrote the paper up and it became a working paper somewhere, probably the IR section, in fact. Uh, the next thing on this was in fall of 72, probably you or maybe me invited Gary Becker to give a lecture. And I, I don't know if you were at the lunch, that lunch with him in Prospect House, the faculty club. I, I, remember, I remember him congratulating you on this paper. It was worse than that. He grilled me on the paper. He grilled me for a half an hour, which was one of the most bizarre experiences of my career, since, as you know, his wife, first wife, had committed suicide a couple of years earlier. And I felt so awkward talking with him about it, but he was completely straight about this and interested intellectually in it. And uh, I've never, I did one other paper on that and that was it. Since 74, I haven't touched suicide. I, I know, I, I realize that. In fact, I rem the way I remember it is somewhat like you do, which is that at first, because uh, we should talk about what the results are. Uh, at first, I think you thought it was sort of a joke to write the paper. And then after a while, I think you became convinced that you actually had discovered something. So, what, I, that's my, my memory of how it came about. How, what, what, so tell us what you learned. First of all, I replicated the well-known result going back to the originator of modern sociology, Emil Durkheim, that during times of higher unemployment, suicide rates go up. That's the standard thing. And you can write that down in a the theory why you should expect that. The next thing, which I believe was novel, goes back. Being from Illinois, we read a poet named Edgar Lee Masters. I can't imagine anybody has heard of this man, but he wrote a poem which is made into a song by Simon and Garfunkel called Richard Corey, which people may know, about this incredibly wealthy guy who everybody admired. And Richard Corey, one summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. So people think that the wealthy are more likely to commit suicide, which makes no economic sense at all if you believe that higher income makes you happier, which I do in general. And so, in fact, we showed in this that those with higher income were less likely to commit suicide. And that result has held up in bunches of studies since then. Uh, I, the other one I thought was a, was a surprise was the connection between suicide rates and age. Yes. And that, too, I would expect younger people to be less likely to commit suicide, uh, A, mainly because they have more life left to live. Now, again, there may be psychological things. At the time of the paper, that expectation, that theoretical prediction was borne out very nicely in the couple of the data sets I have. Since then, it's not clear. There may have been some turnaround, but there's a real problem in fact, with the possible turnaround. And that is, these days, people can take happy pills. I don't know what they're called. Antidepressants. There was a huge drop in suicide in the United States in the 1990s and everywhere else, perfectly correlated with the, the sudden existence of prescriptions for happy pills. So, in fact, the story on this, so I decided, being a rather liberal Democrat, during the 1972 election involving Nixon and McGovern to figure out how many deaths because of suicide were caused by the Nixon recession of 1970. Okay. So I just used the numbers I had in unemployment and got a number of deaths caused by Nixon. It made the front page of the Wall Street Journal, which I get. A, I like being in the press. It's, some people like sex, some like power. I like publicity. Anyway, it got in the front page and I said to myself in the 2000 election, uh, the 2004 election, maybe we can do the same thing for Bush too. And in fact, there was nothing there 
because in the 90s, as I said, people started taking pills that at least removed for a lot of people the possibility or the feeling of a need to kill themselves, which is certainly a very good thing. But it ruined my chance to make fun of W. Uh, yes, and, you know, I, I was not aware of this, uh, your latter point about suicide. So last time I saw anybody do any empirical research on suicide, it was you. And that was quite quite a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, about, 50, about uh, 49 years ago. No, there's immense literature on this now. And even economists doing stuff on this, on suicide ideation, on the effect of failing an exam, on ideas of committing suicide, a couple of papers on Japan doing that. It's ubiquitous. As well, it should be. It's an important issue. I'm not going to work on it, but other people certainly are. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, uh, we're coming to the end of our conversation, and uh, it's just been wonderful having you on here. And it's certainly... Uh, one of the one of the uh, high points uh, for your publicity career. <laughs> let me say one thing. Well, you didn't let me get in one thing, which I'd like to have in there. Uh, yeah, what? You, you, you didn't ask. I've been married to the same woman for 56 years. And let me say, I've dedicated things to her. She reads most of my papers and has numerous times told me, Daniel, you don't want to work on this. This is nonsense. And the coolest thing is how I picked her up, which I've used in class. Okay. Well, now this, this is a story I don't know. No, That's you don't. You couldn't ask about you it. You couldn't ask about it. It's a great story. So I saw her for the first time on October 5th, 1965, okay, which happens to be the night, the night of Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish year. We're fairly religious. Uh, I saw her across the room at a service held in the Yale Law School. And I was just, I thought she was fantastic. And in the service, one of the things you do is you repent for all the bad things you've done. One of the bad things is casting lustful glances. And I had, <laughs> I had spent the whole evening casting lustful glances at her. Okay. Anyway, so I figured, how am I going to meet this lady? Three days later, I think it was a Monday morning, have to be in fact, a woman who I had met, and she, who were the best friends, in fact, were walking in front of my dormitory toward campus. And I jumped out of my thing, put my backpack on, and took my crutches. I was on crutches. I'd broken my foot playing handball. Think about that one for a second. And I walked up to the woman I know, I know slightly, and said, could you introduce me to your friend? And she did. And then I said, how am I going to get to spend time with her? I could ask her for a date, okay, but that would be very forward. And she might well say no. So what I asked her instead, I thought it was a brilliant move, game theoretic move. I said, could you carry my books across campus, given that I'm on crutches? <laughs> now, think about this. If she was a bad person, she would have told me to forget about it. If she was a good person, she'd say yes, and I could spend time with her. And of course, she said yes, and the rest is now 57 years of history. I do this when I teach game theory to intro classes. I create a payoff by matrix with me with the first mover advantage. Okay? I mean, it may be the worst pickup line ever pulled by man, but I'm darn proud of it. So I think very good that you did this during the period when you were not supposed to have lustful glances. <laughs> Uh, so what, uh, the one last thing I do need to ask you about, I think, you became very well known for this, and that's the fact that I, I think maybe after you'd gone emeritus, I'm not sure if it was before or after, uh, you decided that you no, no longer wanted to teach at the University of Texas because, it's said, 
of uh, the, the state legislature uh, and how it uh, changed permits or whatever it is you call uh, carrying weapons concealed. Is that true? Oh, it's not only true. It's worse. A, it's true that I quit what was a three-year contract to teach one giant section of intro every fall from 15, 16, and 17. I'd become emeritus in 2014. I signed this new contract, three years, one course a year, at a decent rate of pay. And shortly after I signed the contract and was getting ready to teach, they passed this law. Now, if I taught like a regular faculty, a smallish class, it wouldn't have bothered me. I was teaching 618-year-old kids, children, really, in this giant class. And the chance of one kid getting really angry with me, and I've had students get angry with their grades, was not insignificant. And I did not want to face the risk of being shot by an angry student in my office. And so I said, I don't need this. And so I, after one year, halfway through the term, I said, I'm done at the end of this semester. It got huge amounts of publicity. People thought I was this wonderful, heroic, anti-gun guy. No, I'm a chicken. I just didn't want to get shot, darn it all. And I was right, because at that time, you had to be 21 to carry a gun in Texas. A suit three years ago, people complained that's age discrimination. And now 18-year-olds can carry guns openly in Texas. I'm a chicken. I'm a chicken. What can I say? Cluck, cluck, cluck. You'd rather not have people with guns in the classroom. Indeed. Well, I understand that. Dan, it's just been a pleasure talking to you today. I, I, I can't imagine that uh, we could have much more fun uh, learning about everything from uh, suicide to your to your how you met your wife uh, <laughs> with lustful glances. Anyway, I, I appreciate so much your coming on. Our guest today has been Dan Hammermesh, a Sue Killian Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Texas at Austin. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University, where we will speak with James Heckman, the Henry Schultz Distinguished Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.